It is great to be here this morning. Um, next week is the official public launch of Redemption Hill La Habra, which is exciting. Um, we're going to have to do some, some work to get enough chairs for you to invite more people, and we're going to do that work. But my hope is really that next week uh, we are just overwhelmed with people from our community, people who live near us, and friends of ours who are here to be a part of what God is doing here. So I would just add to what Evan has said, and I'm going to make this same plug at the end of our service today, that you start thinking and praying about who you know that needs to be plugged into a family with people who love the Lord, people who either need to know him or need to be in a family of people that know him. This morning we're continuing, um, kind of ending our study of Nehemiah, and if you've been here the last couple weeks, you know that we have gone through the book of Nehemiah at lightning speed, 13 chapters in three weeks, and um, the bulk of them this morning. So <clears throat> you can just forgive me in advance, we're going to skip over a number of things, but let me just remind you where we've been and what we want to look at specifically this morning is sort of our last time to look at the book of Nehemiah together before we go out and really bring people into our family, and next week we will begin a vision series on why we're here what is the gospel? How does it change who we are? How does it change who we are as a family of believers? And how does it change who we are in our community? <clears throat> but this morning, you can turn there already if you want to turn to the book of Nehemiah. I am actually going to read from um, this morning from the ESV, which is the one that we usually teach and preach from. That's the one that we provide for you here this morning. For the last few weeks, I've been reading a different version just so you could listen in on the story. This morning, I'm going to just read some bits and pieces to you. But let me remind you where we've been. We saw in week one, in the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, that Nehemiah was released to do the work. He identified the problem, which was the destruction of Jerusalem and the wall of Jerusalem and the continuing um, problems of his people. And God released him to do a work in Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. Last week, we saw the work being done. We saw Nehemiah actually doing the work and bringing the people together to do the work, and we saw him face incredible opposition. Over and over, he faced opposition and continued to point the people to God. Now this morning, we're going to see that the work is not finished with the completion of the wall. If you remember in chapter 6, the wall is done. It took them 52 days to build four and a half miles of wall, 16 feet thick, um, while fending off their enemies at the same time. An amazing feat that obviously God was a part of and God received the glory for it. But the work is not complete with the finishing of the wall because God still has a work to do in his people. In fact, the book of Nehemiah is 13 chapters long. And the wall is built in chapter 6, which gives you some indication of that's not all the book is about. So this morning, we're going to continue looking at this, and we're going to start in chapter 8. <clears throat> the weight of the emphasis of the book really falls here, which is the work that needs to go on in the people of God. Already, he has started to bring them back out of captivity and do a work to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. But the wall of Jerusalem has not fallen because it wasn't built well. Judah did not fall because the people didn't pay attention to their enemy nations. The wall of Jerusalem and Judah fell because of the people of God and their continual disobedience and their continual ignoring of his rules and his commands and their continual wandering away from him. 
So as we start this morning in chapter 8, let me just pray for us as we open God's Word and read from it. Father God, we pray this morning that you would speak to us through your Word, that we would hear what you have for us from the book of Nehemiah as we finish this week. Pray that you would make it clear to us. I pray that we would understand, like your people in Nehemiah's time, our desperate need for you, how broken we are, how great you are, and what our response to that should be. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So as we look this morning, we're going to start in chapter 8, where Ezra, the priest, is going to read from the word of God to the people. So if you look in chapter 8, verse 1, it says this, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. So if anybody wants to complain about how long my sermons are, (laughs) read from the Bible from early morning to the middle of the day, in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So they bring all of the people together, everybody that can hear and understand the Word of God, and they read the Word of God in front of everybody. And if you just skip ahead here to verse 8, it says this, They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and and they gave the sense so that people understood the reading. So they're reading from the law of God, and then they're telling people what it means. They're helping them to understand it. And then I want you to um, listen to the response or the reaction of God's people here. Verse 9, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, because all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So they read the law to the people, and the response of the people is grief. They are grieved. They're cut to the heart because they realize that they have not been attentive to God's law. They're confronted With their own brokenness, they're confronted with their own sinfulness, and their response is to weep. And Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites gather the people and say, not today. Today is holy to the Lord. Today we're going to celebrate that God is doing a work. Because you can be grieved over your sin, but we're going to celebrate today that God is doing something. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And so let's, let's have a party today. You see, what we see in Nehemiah chapter 8 is people confronted with their sin. And when we're confronted with sin, we're confronted with who we are. And we're confronted with what we're like. We're confronted with the problem. The problem is that we're sinful and we're broken and our response to that is shame. It's important for us to remember that this is an Old Testament story. This is pre-Jesus that this is happening. But even now we see how desperately God's people need to be rescued. We see the need for a rescuer. We see the need for the cross. 
but we are post-Jesus. Jesus has come. The work of the cross has been completed and done. And so for us, our perspective on this is a little bit different. Our knowledge of our sin, while it might grieve us, can never be bigger than our knowledge of Jesus and his forgiveness. Because we are great sinners, but we have a greater Savior. And it's important that we would remember that. But the story of Nehemiah really exposes the need for rescue. And we see this response in the posture of the people before God as we move ahead to chapter 9. Let me just point out a couple things. Now, I had originally thought I would read you this whole chapter because this is worth reading. And if you haven't done it, I would just say that's your homework this week. If you can't read the whole book of Nehemiah, read chapter 9. What you're going to see in chapter 9 of Nehemiah is the story of God's faithfulness and the people of God's continued faithlessness. But this is the people of God crying out to God. And listen to the contrast between God and how he's described and God's people and how they're described. This is coming from their own mouth. So starting in chapter 9, verse 5, start with me there. Then the Levites, and it names them, I won't do that, said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. So they begin by just attributing worth to God. And they're going to go and describe their whole history to him, which God already knows. This is not for him. This is for them. But see what happens now as you skip ahead to verse 13. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. This is the one that they've just read, by the way. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. So now we're getting to the part where they describe themselves. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return them to slavery in Egypt. Despite all that God had done, and they list it, the exodus out of Egypt, bread from heaven, the parting of the Red Sea, water out of a rock, Despite all of those things, the people of God still turn their back on him and wander away from him again and again. And it's summarized at the end of this chapter, if you skip ahead with me to verse 33. It says this, Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. 
Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them. They did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you've set over us because of our sin. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. So we see the whole chapter is the people correcting their view of God. In chapter 8, they're confronted with their own sin. They get a a right picture of their sinfulness. And in chapter 9, we see they have a right picture of who God is. God, you are faithful. God, you are holy. God, you are good. And you've given all of these good things. And we continually walk away from you and wander away from you and are wicked and turn our back on you. And that's how this has gone down. And that's why we are today in the promised land that you gave us as slaves. While other kings of other nations enjoy the rich fruit of the land that you gave to us because we couldn't get out of our own way long enough to keep the good gift that you gave. And what we see in response is that a right view of our sinfulness and a right view of God prompts the right response. Chapter 10 is a covenant of God's people. At the end of chapter 9, it says, Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So they say, because of all this, we are going to make a promise to you, God, that we're going to obey your law and we're going to be your people. And so look with me in chapter 10 at what they promise. I don't know how many of you have made a promise to God. Uh, Maybe in a moment of great despair or struggle or weakness, and you probably know how these things work out in the end. God is always faithful. We are rarely faithful. But here's the promise that they make to God, starting in verse 29 of chapter 10. In the middle of that verse, it says, To walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. They say, we will obey all of God's law. That's what it says in the covenant, and we've signed our name to it. Next verse, verse 30, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. We will not intermarry with the nations that surround us that are opposed to you. That's why it's important. These are nations that have been traditionally, historically opposed to God. And every time they bring them into their midst, they're drawn away from him. Verse 31, And if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. So they say, we'll observe the Sabbath. We're going to do the things that we've heard from your law. We're going to follow those things. Verse 32, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. We will give to the ongoing work of the Lord. We're going to obey. We're going to give. We're going to serve. We're going to do what you want, Lord. It goes on. A couple more things. Verse 35 says this. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. We will give our first and our best to God. Why is that? 
Why, was that, why is that even important? It's a heart attitude. It's a response of gratitude. It's putting God in his right place in their mind to say, God, if we have something good, we know that it's from you. And so we want to respond with a heart of giving and a, respond, a heart of gratitude to you. The last thing is this, the very end of verse 39, I just want to point out the wording here because it's going to come up later. The very end of verse 39 of chapter 10 says, we will not neglect the house of our God. They hear God's word, they, <clears throat> they're confronted with their sin, they praise God for what he's like and who he is, and then they respond by saying, God, we are going to follow you, we will obey, we're going to purify ourselves, we are going to pursue you. But as we know, there's this ongoing tension and intense struggle when it comes to pursuing holiness. There's just a problem. The problem is we're broken. We don't work right and we need a savior. The end of the book, <clears throat> chapter 13, outlines some of these, but when we talk about this, I just there's a helpful a helpful picture of this for me when we talk about this in our in our own lives. I heard it um, related in this story. There's an old Indian chief, and he's teaching a group of all these young braves about the ongoing struggle of the will, the will to do right and and wrong. And he says, um, it's like there are two dogs within you, and they're fighting. And one dog always wants to do what's wrong, and one dog always wants to do what's right. And sometimes it feels like the dog who wants to do what's right is stronger, and he's winning, and we do what's right. And sometimes it feels like the dog who wants to do what's wrong is stronger and he's winning and, and we do what's wrong. And one of the braves asks him, but in the end, which one wins? And the chief said, the one that you feed. The one that you feed becomes stronger. The one that you feed will win. And so which dog will you feed is the question. When it comes to the internal struggle of wanting to pursue holiness, wanting to obey God, we know the tension and we understand the tension because we feel it all the time. And the question is, which one are we running after? Which dog are we feeding, if we want to use that analogy? Holiness is not our default position. I wish it was, but it's not. The struggle for God's people never ends. And Nehemiah leaves and goes back to Persia as he promised he would. And when he comes back, he finds that God's people have, guess what, not followed through. And so I just want to, the reason I read them, those specific things earlier is because I want to read these specific things to you. Chapter 13, verse 11, this is Nehemiah speaking. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Remember what they said? <laughs> we will not forsake the house of God. Nehemiah comes back and says, you have forsaken the house of God. Why? And look at Nehemiah's response. His response we actually see in verse 31, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Nehemiah responds with personal responsibility. I will take care of it. Nehemiah is passionate that God's people pursue holiness and pursue a life of obedience to him. In verse 17, see if this sounds familiar to you. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you were doing profaning the Sabbath day? Remember they said, we'll keep the Sabbath. Well, not so much. 
Look at Nehemiah's response. Um, starting in verse 19, As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. Look at this, verse 21. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. I don't know if anyone's ever talked to you that way, but if someone says, I will lay hands on you, (laughs) what he's saying is, leave God's people alone on the Sabbath or I will beat you up or I will send soldiers out to kill you. This is not a joke to me that God's people follow God's law. I will lay hands on you. You can use that if you want Maybe that's not appropriate. I'm not sure. Verse 23 of chapter 13. In those days, I also <clears throat> I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Uh-oh, we've heard of those places before. Historically, traditionally opposed to God's people. It says, And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Now watch this. You thought laying hands was big time. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And then he goes on to say, We have seen this before. We watched Solomon, a great man of God who God had blessed, and we watched how this destroyed him. And how have you not learned this? Nehemiah realizes what's at stake and he understands that the pursuit of holiness is essential for God's people to be effective. He's passionate about them being a holy people and he's willing to lay hands on people. He's willing to beat them, apparently to pull their hair out, which is like really Old Testament. I don't, we don't see anything like that now. Nehemiah will put an end to these things, and he will see God's people pursue holiness. He is passionate about it. As we finish the book of Nehemiah, and we talk about, we've talked about how these things relate to us and how some of them don't, that a narrative scripture is descriptive of a time and of a people. We can't necessarily take all these things and apply them directly to our lives, but I think the attitude of Nehemiah and his posture toward holiness is one that we would be really good to take away. And the thing that that strikes me the most in this story is that we see what happens when we're confronted with our sin and we're confronted with who God is and we see how to respond. Our sin breaks us. We see that God desperately wants to pour out his favor on us and is faithful and loves us and that our response is out of gratitude to follow in obedience to him. Now, I think one of two things can happen as we kind of wrap up this morning. The idea is that God's response prompts our response. God's response to our sinfulness and our brokenness is the cross. God's answer to our sin and our brokenness was Jesus on the cross paying the penalty for that sin and brokenness and saying, you can try as hard as you want, you can't fix this problem. 
This is a God-sized problem. It requires a God-sized solution, and I've fixed it. And all that I ask is that you receive this gift of salvation that I offer to you freely. That's God's response to our sin. Our response to his response would be to say, okay, I will accept that gift. I will put my trust in you for my salvation. That's the response of my heart to that. And then it would be to say, I want to follow in obedience. I want to glorify you. I want to live a holy life before you. Even though I know I can't, in your grace, that's what I want to do. And I think the problem that confronts us is that some of us are painfully aware of our sin. We are, we are overwhelmed by our sin. We're ashamed by our sin. We're confronted with it all the time. People remind us of it, and we live in it, and we wallow in it. But we don't understand who God is. We don't have a right view of God. We don't understand that he knows that and that he's taking care of it and that he invites us into relationship with him anyway and says, I love you. And so we just wallow in our sin and our brokenness and it identifies, it, it defines us. And I have to tell you, I have been that guy. I have been that guy that so identifies with his sin and his brokenness that it just defines who he is. And so when you're confronted with sin or temptation, you say, well, what's one more sin on my pile of sin? I'm already defined by it. I know I'm going to mess up later anyway. What's one more thing? But a right view of God says, that pile of sin does not exist anymore because I've forgiven that. I took that on my back and I crucified that. That died with me. So one more sin is a big deal because it's your first one and I died for that too. Or we have the other problem which is we have a a view of God and who he is and we have no idea of our own sin and brokenness. So we think, of course God loves me. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty lovable. I mean, I mess up but I do my best and I'm generally a good person and we don't even understand how desperately we need a Savior. So it's critically important that we understand our sin, and it's critically important that we understand who God is, and it's critically important that we respond in faith and trust for that love. I'm going to call our ushers this morning to take your connection cards and to take our offering this morning. So if they would come forward, I would just invite you on those cards that you have this morning If you have a prayer request, or if this prompts something in you and says, wow, my response is wrong, or I'm defined by my sin and that's not okay, or I'm defined by not understanding my sin and I don't even recognize my own need for a Savior, because I've been that guy too, the guy that's pretty proud of how well he's doing and ignores his desperate need for a Savior, put that on there. We'd love to talk to you about it. We'd love to pray for you. If you don't have time to do it, Fill it out later and turn it into us later. That's fine. Let me pray for us this morning and then we're going to worship God. Lord, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for your deep, deep love and care. We pray, Father, that we would not be overwhelmed by our sin, but that we would understand it deeply and that it would grieve us. And that grief would be overwhelmed by our understanding of how immensely you love us and that your love covers all of that. We thank you for this morning and we thank you for time to respond to you in song. In your name we pray, amen.